Hello, this is Gary, and you're listening to Timeline Astrology. Hello, and welcome back to Timeline Astrology Podcast. Today, my guest is Alan Anand. Alan is a Vedic astrologer with um, 40 years of experience in both Western and Vedic astrology. He's a graduate of the British Faculty of Astrological Studies, and he subsequently served as the faculty's North American tutor for five years. He co-founded the Astrological Society of Montreal and for several years was their president and their principal teacher. And during this time, he also spoke at several national conferences. He later studied Vedic astrology as well as palmistry with Hart Defoe in New Mexico and California and was certified by the American College of Vedic Astrologers. So he practices in Toronto and often visits Montreal as well as offering Skype readings. You can find him on the web at navamsa.com. That's N-A-V-A-M-S-A, navamsa.com. So I invited Alan on the show to speak about his latest book called Kala Sarpa Yoga. And the reason I asked him on uh, for this uh, particular topic is not only to speak about his great book, but also because this yoga or combination is forming once again in the Zodiac this year, 2020. So um, I was very pleased to have Alan on and talk about this, what is uh, oftentimes a very obscure and confused topic. And he'll explain why that is also. Um, But first I began by asking him as I ask all of my guests, if there was a ritual or routine, um, a practice perhaps that he does on a daily basis that helps him tune into the spirit of Vedic astrology to be able to tap into the cosmos. Well, you know, I, I do a brief meditation each morning, and then basically the biggest thing for me is to look at uh, pictures of my teachers and say thanks to them for having shared their knowledge with me, without which I'd be a know-nothing astrologer. And, you know, and when I turn on my computer, the first thing I do is, you know, boot up my astrology program and just look and, you know, see the planetary positions of the day, just to know what's going on. Mm. Yeah, sounds good. Um, So, well, there's a lot going on right now. I'm sure you'd agree in the world. Uh, we're recording this on the 11th of March, 2020. Um, and our topic today is the Kala Sarpa Yoga, which is um, something that you're going to explain all about. Um, and it's quite confusing, uh, to say the least. But I guess that's all part of it, the kind of confusion of the nodes of the moon. So could you explain to us what um, Rahu and Ketu, the north and south node, are? Well, you know, many astrologers know uh, that the north and south or ascending and descending nodes, respectively, are not actual physical things to be seen in the sky. You can find their positions in an ephemeris but, or in a computer program, but you can't go out in the backyard and look for them at night with your telescope because they are, if you like, sort of abstract uh, positions. Uh, so, you know, here's a way to uh, envision them. And I actually used to do this in, uh, you know, in larger venues when I could uh, use the, the support props to do this. But uh, picture, you know, a person who's standing, let's say, waist deep in a lake and consider them to be the earth, if you like. And what they have is a baseball 
on a, a long string, let's say 20 feet or so. And they're swinging that baseball around them. And that baseball represents the moon. But standing as they are in the lake, uh, the baseball representing the moon does not swing around them um, parallel to the lake surface. Instead, the baseball slash moon swings up above the surface of the lake for half of its uh, orbit and then plunges into the lake and, you know, against all the laws of physics, continues underwater uh, for in a 180 degree portion of a circle and then pops out of the water uh, somewhere over on the other side and then is above the surface again. So we go back to that person in the lake and say, imagine that's the Earth and that lake surface is like the equatorial plane that radiates out from the equator of the Earth. The moon in its orbit swings above and below, north and south respectively, of that equatorial plane. The place where the moon uh, pops out of the lake and emerges into the northern hemisphere, as it were, that is the north node, the ascending node, Rahu. Where that baseball, in my analogy, or the moon, cuts the equatorial plane, cutting through it and disappearing from the northern hemisphere and going into the southern hemisphere, that's the descending node, the south node, or K2. So, you know, in, the, in, in ancient times, you know, you, you did not calculate those nodes. You simply observed the moon where it crossed the equatorial plane, uh, you know, twice a month, once, you know, heading north and once heading south, and you simply marked those positions against the backdrop of the constellations. But those are the nodes. Those are the nodes. That's a great analogy. I might use that one if I may <laughs> at a future no point. Yeah, it's a great. It just really gives you a good visual of what they are. But that brings up another question, which is, um, and you've written this book all on this subject about Kala Sarpa Yoga and the nodes. Uh, a really great book, by the way. I, I've read it twice already. Um, it's, it's great. It's a great read. But um, you bring up this point about true node or mean node, and you actually state that um, true node is really not true, but perhaps even hypothetical. Can you explain a bit about what you mean there? Well, because, as I say, the, um, the nodes are uh, an, an abstract point, and the only point at which they become real is through observation. And the, the event to be observed is when the moon crosses the equatorial plane, heading north for the ascending node, or Rahu, or two weeks later, heading south. Well, why two weeks? Because the moon has an orbital period of roughly a month. So, uh, you know, technically 27 and a half days from a sidereal perspective. So it's roughly every two weeks, the moon will cross the equatorial plane, first going north uh, into the northern hemisphere and then south into the southern hemisphere. It's really only at those two, um, you know, celestial event points that an observer on Earth could see the uh, moon crossing uh, the equatorial plane and therefore mark that position. Now, for the intervening, you know, 13 days while the moon is arcing up into the northern hemisphere, um, 
the North Node still exists back at the point where it did cross the equatorial plane days or, or, or even a week ago. So the, its intermediate positions uh, is really abstract and theoretical uh, because the node doesn't exist until it breaks the water, in my analogy, going uh, into or out of the lake, as the case may be. So it was not until the 60s when, uh, you know, NASA was, you know, um, beginning to do moon uh, shots and um, astronomers um, and um, other scientists had to calculate, you know, every little deviation in the moon's uh, orbit. And uh, then they realized that there are minor perturbations in the moon's orbit. And uh, they determined that, technically speaking, um, the, the node uh, could be somewhat more variable than they had first thought. And Neil Michelson in that era with his, uh, you know, 20th century ephemeris, uh, you know, caught um, news of this. And he began to incorporate into his ephemeris uh, more than just the so-called um, mean node, which was always based on observation. He, be he began to call this other uh, calculated uh, position for the node erroneously, I think, it was a big mistake on his part to do that, I believe, to call it the true node. Um, true? Why true? Because what? Because scientists calculated it, that made it true. Uh, and anyway, it's then ever after then, when people had the choice of including mean node or true node in their uh, horoscopes, uh, and in, you know, as a toggle in their uh, calculation routine, they would choose true over mean because who doesn't want the real deal you know they want the real the, the true thing rather than some um you know averaged value uh and so people have gone down that road ever since without realizing what it is that they have done uh, meanwhile <clears throat> vedic astrologers jyotishi uh in, in multiple centuries before NASA ever came along with these calculations, they were using nothing other than the mean node because it was based on uh, observations twice a week. And if they wanted to know where the node was hypothetically between that, they simply did an arithmetic um, you know, uh, adjustment to, to calculate where it might have been uh, in between those two uh, two-week sightings. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the deviance between true and mean node can be up to one and a half degrees of uh, zodiacal longitude. If you choose to use a true node, uh, you could be off technically from the mean node by one and a half degrees. And you might say, well, that doesn't matter too much in my natal horoscope. In Western astrology, you're right. It may not matter too much. But you know, if you are a practitioner of Vedic astrology, and for sure you then use the divisional charts, the so-called amshas or vargas, when you get down to these finer divisions, well, now a one and a half degree variance in accuracy uh, will can very well mean that if you look at your navamsha with a mean node, uh, your your node may be in Aries. But if you're using a true node, you know, quote unquote, true node, uh, it could be in Pisces. And that's going to change, you know, your interpretation about a person's 
uh, marital conditions or, or relationship happiness during Rahu K2 periods, for instance. I mean, these judgments, which we make lightly, can have uh, interpretive consequences. And, you know, fair game. You, you can do what you want to do, but you should be aware of the consequence of what happens when you do what you do. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the nodes themselves are like shadows, as you mentioned, and, and they're not actual physical things we can see. And so to make it as simple as we can, if that's even possible, I think is always a good option. Um, and the fact that there's so many uh, varying, um, you know, just these two calculations alone, but all the other uh, controversies around them and how to calculate strengths and et cetera and et cetera, Basically, sure. you end up with a big bit of a mess where you can't really say anything definite. And I've come across this a lot myself in reading charts where, I mean, oftentimes it does actually move signs and it, it throws everything off in relation to what they rule in the chart and all of that. And yet that still is quite obscure, even if I were to spend like loads of time with a client trying to figure this out because it's all shadowy stuff. So it's like they're not really sure you could you could be either or, you know. Exactly. Well, the whole notion of shadow arises from the consequence of uh, the position of the nodes is a determinant in eclipses, because when you've got the uh, the moon um, uh, crossing uh, the equatorial plane and um, and the sun uh, is is coincident with that uh, via the ecliptic, uh, that's when you get eclipses are enabled. And of course, eclipses, as we know, it's always a shadow. If the moon comes between Earth and Sun, it's the moon's shadow upon our Earth that causes an apparent, you know, night during the day. Uh, whereas on a full moon a circumstance, it's the Earth's shadow being cast upon the uh, the moon that uh, effectively blots it out temporarily uh, from the night sky. So it's all about shadows. It's all shadows, yeah. And so, well, on that subject, then let's just dive straight into the actual topic today, which is the Kal Sarpa Yoga. And Kal itself is often translated as black or as time, depending. Um, yeah. Can you explain what the term Kal Sarpa Yoga means? Well, you're halfway there. Kala means both time, and it does mean black as well, too. And Sarpa, I mean, it, it sounds like serpent, doesn't it? And well, and so it is. So, I mean, very loosely, you know, Kala Sarpa can mean, uh, you know, the, the black snake of time. So, you know, snakes are uh, sort of an archetypal figure of uh, the embodiment of occult knowledge because they live, you know, beneath uh, the surface of the earth. Uh, they, they strike fear and awe into people, uh, as does the specter of death itself, too. Uh, and because, um, you know, Kalasarpa is associated with time uh, and with serpents, you know, it, it has an ominous kind of uh, meaning overall. The nodes are also considered enemies of the sun and moon, you know, because of their uh, capacity symbolically to swallow the luminaries uh, during uh, solar and uh, lunar eclipses. Mm -hmm. And we and we have this, in fact, uh, this this combination in effect this year. Uh, we can go through that in a little while if you'd like. But can you explain a bit more about actually how this yoga or combination is formed? Well, the the broad um, definition for the formation of Kalasarpa yoga is. Um, look at a chart and see the Rahu-Ketu axis. 
Uh, you know, because the, the two points, Rahu and Kato, or north and south ascending, descending nodes, are always diametrically opposite by definition, you, you therefore have a handy kind of bisector of the zodiac or bisector of the chart. Rahu on one side, Ketu on the other. So if you glance at a chart, uh, identify Rahu and Ketu, and note if all the planets are on one side or the other of Rahu Ketu, generally you have a Kala Sarpa Yoga. Now there, there are some strict definitions of it, and uh, you know, Kala Sarpa is not discussed in, in uh, uh, Jyotish Shastra, so, you know, I've experienced lots of blowback from people, uh, you know, when I've, um, you know, promoted this book, for instance, on Facebook groups and, and people start yelling at me in capital letters that, you know, Kala Sarpa does not exist. It's not real. It doesn't appear in Shastra. And then, you know, I have to remind such people that there's so much that does not appear in Shastra that's part of an oral tradition. I mean, don't get me started. Uh, a yoga as common as Chandra Mangala, you know, the Moon-Mars Yoga Association or, or a mutual aspect, it's not discussed in Shastra either. And, and yet it, we use it all the time in interpretation. So back to the general rule. Uh, Rahu Ketu split the chart in two. If planets are all on one side or the other, you have Kala Sarpa Yoga. But there, there are some strict definitions. The most classic of them is what we call a class one uh, Kala Sarpa Yoga. So simply just imagine this, Rahu in Aries, Ketu in um, Libra. So <clears throat> no matter which side you choose, between those two signs, <clears throat> Aries and Libra, there would be five intervening signs. Uh, you know, let me count in zodiacal order, and I can count on my fingers. So between Aries and Libra, there is Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, and Virgo. So there's five intervening signs. So the, the hard-edged classic definition of Kalasarpa says that the seven visible planets, you know, the two luminaries and the five true planets, must all be placed in those signs, those five intervening signs. And the example I'm giving from Taurus through to Virgo, they must be in those. They can't be in Aries. They can't be in Libra because that's where Rahu and Ketu are. But remember, this is the class one definition and the most uh, absolute, uh, you know, um, buckled down version of, of the Kalasarpa. Right. Um, but class one is when that exists and, and, and also that the seven planets are evenly distributed, well, as much as you can evenly distribute seven planets over five signs, such that every sign, every one of those five signs is occupied and none are left vacant. That would be as perfect a, a Kalasarpa as you could hope to get. Rahu and Ketu, their signs are unoccupied. The seven, the Saptagraha, the seven planets, are spread over the five intervening signs, and no sign is empty. That's class one. Class two is very similar. Rahu and Ketu occupy their respective signs. No planet is in the same sign as them. The planets are spread over the five intervening signs, but they may bunch up to some degree such that one or more of the intervening signs may be vacant. So that's sort of like a spotty version of it. So that's class two, less than perfect. 
then class three is then <clears throat> you actually allow a planet to be in the same sign as Rahu and or Ketu could happen. And uh, then they're spread over one side of that, you know, one of those arcs, either to left or to right of the, uh, or clockwise or uh, counterclockwise from Rahu. Um, and they may be spread up or bunched, it doesn't matter. It's already getting more um, sort of um, uh, less perfect, I guess we would say, because now Rahu and Ketu may have a planet in the same sign uh, as, as there as they are. And, and that's where a lot of traditionalists will start yelling at you and saying, no, that negates it immediately as soon as a planet gets in the same sign as one of the nodes, Rahu Ketu is all over. But it's not. This is what we call a class three. But it, it's we're deteriorating in terms of perfection. Mm -hmm. uh, and then class four is when uh, Rahu and Ketu is still in, uh, in uh, Aries and uh, Libra, in my example, one or more planets may be in the same signs occupied by the node. Uh, oh, I forgot in, in class three, I'm sorry. Uh, in that example, uh, planets may occupy the same sign as Rahu and Ketu, but with respect to that axis that's established by Rahu Ketu, no planet goes on, um, they all stay on the same side of that axis technically on the same side of that 100 degree, 180 degree axis, no planet goes beyond that. So let's say in my example, um, uh, Rahu and Ketu were both mid-sign in uh, Aries Libra. And so uh, there were planets in the latter part of Aries, uh, and then they were in Taurus, uh, Gemini, uh, Cancer, Leo, and Virgo, and in early Libra. So long as none of them uh, went beyond 15 degrees Libra, and so long as all of them were beyond 15 Aries, they would all be on uh, one side of the Rahu Ketu axis, as, as you know, we can read from looking at any chart. That's a class three. Class four happens when now not only might there be a planet in the same sign as Rahu and Ketu, but one or more of those planets may also get on the other side of that axis, the 15 degree axis that we've now defined in my example. So if I continue with my example, Rahu Ketu, midpoints of Aries and Libra, most of the planets are spread around between late Aries and early Libra, all of them staying within that zone that we've defined, but one planet, let's say it's the moon, is at five degrees Aries. So if you can visualize this now, if the axis is, is at 15 degrees of Aries Libra respectively, and all the planets, most all of the planets, are on one side of that, except the moon now, that is in early Aries, is actually outside that axis, the only planet that might be. But so long as it's still in Aries, the sign occupied by Rahu in my example, it's still valid. But if that person was born, uh, what did I say as an example? Five, five degrees um, uh, Aries. If that person was born 12 hours earlier, in which case that moon would move back six degrees and be into 29 degrees Pisces, 
blip, that's it, that's gone, it no more exists. Now, <clears throat> a planet is outside of the axis um, defined by um, Rahu and Ketu, outside of the sign in which the nodes appear. So um, <clears throat> Donald Trump comes close to that kind of situation where his uh, moon is uh, very late in Scorpio. It, his Rahu Ketu are in uh, Taurus and Scorpio respectively. His moon is in very late Scorpio, <clears throat> Uh, and it's outside the axis of the Rahu Ketu, but still in the same signs as Rahu Ketu. But if he were born, I think it's just hours later, maybe three or four hours later, uh, the moon would have slipped out of um, Scorpio and gone into Sagittarius. And that is technically the empty side of that chart and immediately Kalasarpa would be over in that case. It would go from class four Kalasarpa to no Kalasarpa at all. To no Kalasarpa. So you've classed them as four, and I'm actually just referring your, to your book here where you um, refer to them as class one as perfect, two as potent, three as partial, and then that fourth one you just mentioned there is the potential. So <clears throat> Yes, those are our labels. Those are the four. Okay, future. great. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's very clear. Thanks, Alan. And I'm just looking at the charts actually this year, and I just calculated, I already calculated a sort of, I guess, a partial or even a potent one um, in April and May. But actually, between 17th and 19th of April, there is a perfect yoga forming. Um, because that is when all of the planets are occupying from Capricorn to Taurus, uh, with no planets conjoined Rahu in Gemini or K2 in Sagittarius. Would I be right? Yes. Yeah, right now we can't have that uh, a perfect scenario because uh, Mars and uh, Jupiter are both in the same sign as K2. Mm -hmm. So they have both got to move into Capricorn, which is forthcoming, as you point out. <clears throat> and then you've got the potential uh, for a Class 1 or a Class 2. But the, the other caveat enters into this, um, you can't have a class one unless those planets are uh, spread out to occupy all of Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, Aries, and Taurus. Uh, I haven't looked ahead to right. see does that actually happen. I, I think that actually does actually happen on 17th to 19th of April. But if you extend it out like further than that, as you mentioned, I mean, you could have, because as soon as Jupiter and Saturn move beyond the nodes, I mean, it can happen quite often then. Mars and Jupiter. Oh, oh, yes, in general. Yes, once Jupiter and Saturn, they're the determinants, of course, because they're the slow-moving uh, planets. Once they get uh, both together on the same side as the Rahu-Ketu axis, then you can have, you know, <clears throat> many, you know, lengthy periods, you know, then Mars becomes the next most important planet. You got to have Mars on the same side as well, too. But then once you've got that, that then you can have six-month periods where the sun and the inner planets, Mercury and Venus, are going to be on the same side as well, too. And then it's just the moon that's breaking the pattern or fulfilling the pattern every two weeks. You can have lengthy periods of Kalos Harpas. Yeah, but and in your book, you mentioned as well that to have an actual um, a potent or a perfect one, and that's quite a, a low percentage in, in individuals' charts. Yeah, I, I, I number crunched, you know, all the Kalasarpas that I could uh, get my hands on, which amounted to, you know, roughly about 600 charts between, you know, 
240 famous people and you know roughly uh, uh, 360 um, uh, um, clients from my own client files and sort of you know on the on that basis you know calculated like how frequent or infrequent uh, is this and came up with those percentages. Yeah, so I mean overall, if you allow class one, two, three, and four, uh, call a SARPA of whatever uh, description to be. Um, your um, benchmark, uh, it will happen for uh, roughly 12% of humanity, uh, or one in eight people. Mm. And but so, mm. more rigorous definitions obviously force those percentages way down. Right. Sure. And so, I mean, I mean, the fact that again we're talking about the nodes and the shadows, and you know, all this debate about you know what is a yoga or is it even taken in the first place, and all the varying degrees of it. Um, of course, it just adds to all the confusion, the controversy. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that they are nodes, they are eclipses, they are shadows, and when planets join them, they do obviously have that impact. I'm just wondering because your book is primarily written about natal astrology, like looking at individuals' charts and your database. But what about in terms of mundane astrology, looking at the current climate we're in in 2020? How do you read it um, this year? Um, I don't want to steal my own thunder too much for a, um, a, a webinar where I'm participating in a panel uh, this weekend. Um, basically, the topic is, you know, the, the spring equinox. And, and, and what does it reveal? And I'm, I'm there as the representative for the Vedic perspective. And, you know, to tell the truth, I, I don't spend much time anymore, uh, you know, with the mundane aspects of astrology because, you know, quite frankly, n nobody pays you to do that. You know, it's real <laughs> live clients that, that pay me to, to help them orient sure. their career or, or find their, their love partner. Uh, but, um, in that panel, um, basically, I've used you know the spring equinox as simply a snapshot of uh, what's going on at that time. And if you look at that chart for the the equinox, through uh, you know calculated it calculate it using you know tropical chart because that's what defines the equinox, and then convert it to sidereal and interpret it on that basis. Um, you do have a circumstance where there is a Kalasarpa yoga. Uh, this is on, jeez, uh, I've forgotten the, uh, it's March 19th, I think. Uh, there is a Kalasarpa Yoga. Uh, Mars and uh, Saturn, uh, you know, as you know, are in Sagittarius at the time. Uh, but they're in a planetary war as well, too. Uh, and so in this particular mundane chart uh, for that, um, you know, the exact time of the equinox, uh, Mars and Saturn rule certain houses in the chart that suggests this is indeed a, a very, um, you know, toxic period for um, life on Earth and uh, health of its residents. And, you know, martial law or its equivalent is, is looming as a consequence of that. Uh, you know, and I wrote this article, um, well, I wrote an article in preparation for webinar participation sometime last month. And I haven't seen anything in the news that actually uses the word martial law yet, but I'm certainly seeing scenarios, for instance, the total lockdown of Italy as, as a good example of martial law in effect. Right. 
So certainly you can use these things in a mundane aspect. I mean, if I weren't asked to participate in this webinar, I, I might not have bothered to do that. But it goes mm -hmm. to show you, you can turn astrology's uh, hand to just about anything. Sure. And, well, obviously, you know, whatever you're referring to in terms of, uh, you know, Saturn-Mars conjunction or whatever else is going on the chart, it seems that you're saying... Uh, Mars-Jupiter Mars conjunction. Mars-Jupiter uh, conjunction, sorry. Um, it seems that whatever you or whatever's going on in the chart at the time, um, when a Mars-Saturn does uh, come into effect um, by the end of March, that the nodes seem to exaggerate uh, the indications of the other transits, it seems. Would I be right in saying that? Yes, I mean, it's a useful construct just to think of Rahu and Ketu as being amplifiers or magnifiers of that which already exists in the chart. Uh, I'm fond of, of looking at Rahu and Ketu as, as uh, like lawyers who act as proxies for, you know, whoever hires them. And, you know, you can have a good guy uh, hire a lawyer. You can have a bad guy hire the lawyer. And, uh, you know, that lawyer will, you know, apply his energies uh, in proportion to his fees, no doubt, to, you know, executing or attempting to execute the will of his client. And so if Rahu or Ketu is associated with or aspected by nothing other than benefics in the chart, uh, we call such a Kalasarpa configuration a yoga, that which, you know, implies benefit. However, if uh, Rahu and Ketu in a Kalasarpa chart are uh, influenced uh, predominantly or solely by malefics like uh, uh, Mars, uh, Saturn and Mars, for instance, then we end up calling that Kalasarpa a dosha. Uh, a flaw, you know, uh, something spoiled, uh, less than desirable in terms of its, you know, potential ramification. Hmm. And that brings up another point as well in terms of um, the difference between when planets are gathered on one side moving towards Rahu or moving towards Ketu. So you mentioned this in your book also, uh, the different classifications. Can you explain it a little about that? Yeah, I mean, you can, <clears throat> there, there are two labels that are applied to these circumstances. <clears throat> so back to my, you know, uh, very simplistic analogy earlier, when I said uh, Rahu was in, in a hypothetical natal chart where Rahu is in Aries and Ketu is in um, <clears throat> um, Libra. Uh, I talked about, let's, let's imagine uh, all the planets spread in Taurus, the intervening signs in zodiacal order. Uh, the, the planets are spread around Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, and Virgo. <clears throat> in such a case, all those planets, you know, accepting their brief retrograde periods, all those planets are moving in zodiacal order. They're moving, you know, from uh, Leo and Virgo towards and into Libra and beyond. So they are moving to meet Ketu. Meanwhile, K2 is actually drifting backwards to meet them. So <clears throat> uh, that is uh, called Viloma uh, direction. Uh, and it's basically the planets moving towards the tail of uh, the serpent. You know, Rahu is considered to be the head, K2 the tail. Uh, that's considered to be more benign because if you had to tackle a snake, Gary, a, a, a giant <laughs> boa constrictor or an anaconda, 
would you want to grab it by the head or grab it by the tail? Actually, that's a pretty lousy choice. Mm. You know, I, I live in Ireland, remember, and for a good reason. <laughs> you, you, you guys drove the snakes out of Ireland years ago. Uh, well, actually, that, that's a poor analogy to pose for you because I guess you want to do grab it by the head. But, but my point is we are afraid of the head because the head has the fangs to strike us with poison. Or if it, you know, the snake gets a grip on, a, on us, it may indeed open its hinged jaws and swallow us. So when the planets are moving towards K2, it's considered to be less dangerous than the other circumstance, where if the planets were on the other side, uh, let's say I was saying Libra, so if the planets are in uh, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces, therefore moving towards Rahu, the head of the snake poses those danger because of you know the fangs to inject poison, the mouth to swallow you. That's considered to be more dangerous. That's called anuloma direction. Now, this is what it says in Shastra. And yet, you know, I was curious when I got into my research and some number crunching to see, well, gosh, does this bear out in any way, you know, for people who appear to be, you know, uh, sick or tragic lives or whatever the case may be. And I found scant but marginal evidence that basically uh, famous people were more likely to have more uh, viloma patterns in their charts than the anuloma. In other words, they had their planets moving towards Ketu. Whereas normal people, and look, normal people are just normal, not people with tragic lives. Uh, they were more likely to have the anuloma uh, formation where planets are moving towards Rahu. I consider this, even though it's 600 charts, to be still <clears throat> scant evidence for any kind of you know, blanket prophecy for positivity or negativity because it was really, really so marginal, like 51 to 49%. And so in the end, I say, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't care anymore because this is too wispy a thesis to be supported. Uh, I see no evidence of it. So I've left it at that. Right. I mean, this is this begs the question then, you know, how do you um, avoid the tendency to overgeneralize this? Because, I mean, like I said, they're confusing already. And if you add this into a chart, which has got many other layers going on, that it may you know, add a lot of complexity and shadow and nuance and all of that. How do you make any statements really, um, or any definitive statements without confusing somebody? Well, I mean, I could ask that of you, uh, you, you know, in interpreting a chart without even considering Kalasarpa, because, you know, as we know, there's all kinds of, you know, conflicting statements. If you read Shastra, um, you know, you'll read about Saturn, you know, w with its position in the bhavas. And basically, wherever Saturn goes, he brings, a, you know, a healthy dose of misery. And yet, if you read about Saturn, uh, you know, in, in the yoga chapter of Paladipika, uh, you'll see uh, sometimes Saturn is extolled, you know, providing he owns positive houses and you know acts with a certain strength so how can how can the classic malefic saturn be so terrible you know passing through bhavas and yet be so powerful 
uh, when possessed of yoga quality. Uh, it boggles the mind, right? So, I mean, look, uh, my, my teacher's guru was very fond of saying, you know, <clears throat> Jyotish is God's work, and, and God guards it jealously. If this were easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's not easy. It is complicated. But to answer your question a little bit more directly, um, you know, without <laughs> trying to be facetious, um, we do have to consider the strengths and weaknesses of everything that's in a chart and consider, do we have corroboration or do we have disagreement? And, you know, as astrologers, we're, we encounter this all the time, all the time. You know, a client will say, what do you think? Am I going to get married? What are my prospects for for a relationship and marriage. And you look at this, that, and the other thing, and you know, you could be torn this way and that way and this way and that way. But eventually you gotta come down to make saying something to the client. And so you gotta sort that out. And hopefully you've got a protocol and a hierarchy of factors that you will look at, assess their strength and viability, and balance them against the other factors that are perhaps not so important but are evident anyway to the casual observer and sort that up. In a chart there's always a mix of stuff. Kala Sarpa tends to sort of force everything out into the open, if you like, even out from the shadows and into the open. So things that are strong in a chart, <clears throat> Kala Sarpa can accentuate, uh, amplify, or highlight in some way. Equally so, things that are negative in a chart may also be highlighted and brought out by Kala Sarpa. So Kala Sarpa is kind of a tool to make force everything out into the open. The nodes themselves act as amplifiers, and it's their association with benefics versus malefics that will determine some of their tenor. So, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly, you know, struggling with um, saying specific things versus saying, you know, um, you know exaggerated things. Uh, you can say specific things if you see enough evidence that gives you the comfort of doing so. You know, when your doctor says, you know what, you've got meningitis, he says it on the basis of having seen, you know, um, a CT scan of your brain, uh, evidence of your behaviors, blood tests, and who knows whatever else uh, a, a real doctor might, you know, offer as evidence for that sort of thing. He doesn't say it on the evidence of a single test or opinion. So we, we get to say specific things when we have an accumulation of evidence. But saying extreme things often results by picking up on one thing uh, and, and treating that one thing that you read in some esoteric book that says this or that, and you, you remembered it and you said that, and yet that might be an exception to a, a number of rules, but you're now saying it because you remember it and you lack the corroborative evidence. So I try to be specific without being extreme. And the way my teacher has held my feet to the fire with respect to all this is be very thorough in, in vichara, uh, you know, analysis. Look at your planets. Are they strong or weak or ordinary? Look at the bhavas, the houses. Are they strong or weak or ordinary? Look at the yogas in their chart. You may technically have a Chandra Mangala Yoga, but if that moon is not in Taurus and that Mars is not in Scorpio, you know, mutual aspect, 
I've just given an example of a powerful Chandramanga um, Yoga. Uh, something other than that might be, you know, very poor and not 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 expect uh, it to gain traction and to produce results. So we have to be, you know, we have to observe the things that are in the chart, but we have to assess their strength or weakness as well too, and get into a position where we we gain confidence through strength, weakness, and corroboration of saying that we can speak. Uh, with a with a, you know a single voice and not be contradicting ourselves you know in the next paragraph uh, of of a statement to a client. Right, right, um, and of course, and I take everything on board what you're saying, and I and I do get a sense from reading your books that you have you know a, an in depth knowledge as well as a really uh, thorough uh, approach to your analysis. Um, but yet still, we're talking about shadows, and when we talk to someone else about them, uh, a client especially or anyone or Let's blow it out into world events. Like, let's take the example right now this year of the coronavirus. You know, had to bring that one up. Right. right. I mean, if we look at the chart for that and we look at the nodes involvement and where they are currently in the lunar mansions involved, Ardra and Mula, and no matter how you might want to specify that, at the end of the day, we're dealing with something unseen. And the kind of fear, like you mentioned, that brings up when when that kind of serpent energy comes up, um, how do you manage that in a, in a consultation with a client where you're, you're actually dealing with someone's shadow? Yeah, well, of, of course, and, and we are all sort of guilty, uh, you know, depending upon our psychological makeup of, of shadow projection out into the world, whether it's, you know, our own, you know, uh, flaws and foibles that we project on others, fears and anxieties and all the rest of that, of which, you know, um, Rahu and Ketu are, are, are very symptomatic, or actually I'm, I'm saying it in reverse, fears and anxieties are themselves uh, symptomatic of Rahu and Ketu, which are not tangible things, but, but you know, uh, shadows, uh, a clouding of our very minds or emotions, as the case may be. And, you know, you can't, it's hard to get a grip on something which remains you know, shrouded in, in shadow or mystery. If you can't see something in a clear light, you know, whether that's the light of your own mind or, or a literal light where we see things in the world, if you can't see something clearly, it's difficult to assess it. So Rahu and Ketu have, have, you know, are notorious for being misunderstood because they are shadowy creatures. And even if you understand the concept that Rahu and Ketu act as proxies and will therefore uh, embody uh, the, the characteristics of planets with which they are in contact by association or aspect, even that can create, you know, incredible modification because, I mean, let, let's imagine an exaggerated case. If Rahu and Ketu were in um, <clears throat> Aries and uh, Libra, and all of the other planets were also in Aries and Libra, then Rahu and Ketu, by association or mutual aspect, would end up representing every other planet in the chart. And then ultimately, what would they then represent if they represent all of those? Well, we then have to get into analysis. And maybe if Mars is in Aries, then... Uh, Aries will be one of those planets with strength that will be most um, represented, best represented by Rahu or Ketu. But if Saturn is in Aries as well, 
then it may be least represented because it is at least weak. But when it's debilitated, it's also, you know, unpredictable and, uh, you know, deranged. It's like a, uh, it's like a, uh, a crazy gorilla, you know, that uh, or a sick gorilla that will now act unpredictably. So, you know, we'd have to, you know, assess each of those planets and to see which of those is more likely to be represented uh, and, um, and, and which is <laughs> unpredictable. Uh, as uh, as we know, you know, much of astrology can be, especially without analyzing what's going on. And I realize I'm not giving you a straight answer, except that Rahu and Ketu have this capacity to represent multiple clients. If I can go back to my legal analogy, and in so doing, uh, it can be it can be confusing to say really, really, who are you representing preeminently uh, among this cast of clients. And we can only do that by by assessing the clients. And that, analogically, that's like saying, who's who's really got your ear uh, by virtue of the fee that they pay or by virtue of their inherent strength? I mean, if the president of the United States is one of your clients, regardless of whether you're doing it pro bono or not, the president will be well represented by you to the best of your abilities on, on the score of power alone. Um, and, and on it goes. It, it is it is complicated. I agree. It, absolutely. But I think you explained it very well, Alan. So uh, I appreciate that. Um, as, as much as you can explain these kind of um, indications in a chart. I, I have one last question for you. I really appreciate you taking the time today sure. um, to explain this very well. Um, and that is uh, another yet another controversy. So another controversy is based on their strength. By uh-huh. sign position, right? So, because right now we have Rahu in Gemini and Jupiter in Sagittarius, right? Um, and I'm just, I can't help but note that in April, Jupiter moves into Capricorn, Mercury moves into Pisces. They're both debilitated. They rule Rahu and Ketu, and what that would signify in terms of maybe bringing out their weaker aspects, uh, I would imagine. But can you just maybe talk about um, the actual general placements, Rahu, uh, Ketu? Gemini, Sagittarius, or indeed, like a lot of people refer to Rahu in Taurus and Ketu in Scorpio, and those being their exaltation signs. Yeah, well, there is indeed a great deal of controversy about that. And, you know, end of the day, you have to be guided by your own teacher uh, with uh, the confidence that he operates uh, within and courtesy of a lineage that is uh, traditional and has, you know, some substantive uh, history to it. So, you know, uh, Parashara uh, um, says, I, I believe that uh, Rahu and Ketu thrive in, in uh, Gemini uh, Sagittarius. Uh, and I've actually forgotten which way it is, but I know those are two signs where they're um, considered with strengths uh, and or weaknesses because they're polar opposites. Um, uh, my teacher, Hart Defoe, um, uses a a concept from tantric astrology, courtesy of his own guru, who is part of a lineage, uh, wherein Rahu and Ketu become exaggerated in uh, Taurus and Scorpio. But here's a confounding thing that people struggle to get their heads around. If I could draw you a diagram of, uh, of the planet's exaltation and uh, debilitation signs, all of the planets, 
including Rahu and Ketu. I could show you some beautiful symmetry to this, but in lieu of that diagram, uh, let me just verbally explain it. Uh, Rahu or Ketu uh, is exalted in Scorpio. Rahu or Ketu, and I should say it and, but, they, but I don't want to say and right. because they can't be there at the same time. Rahu or Ketu is exalted in Scorpio. Rahu or Ketu is debilitated in Taurus. So if you do have Rahu in Scorpio, that means it's exalted while at the same time Ketu must be debilitated because it's in Taurus. Um, nine years later, uh, Rahu will be in Taurus where it will be debilitated and therefore Ketu, which must now be in Scorpio, will therefore be exalted. Uh, and that's it, that's all. Um, exaltation and debilitation. In, in the Amshas and Vargas, uh, heart will allow that Rahu, which is Saturn-like, will feel at home in Aquarius, which is Saturn's Mula Tracona slash male sign. Meanwhile, uh, Ketu, which is Mars-like, uh, will feel at home in Aries, which is Mars Mula Tracona slash male sign. So the nodes can have their dignities uh, exalted or debilitated in the Rashi chart in Scorpio and Taurus, respectively. And in the Amshas, they can have uh, the other dignities of you know, what we loosely call Swarashi being in your in your own sign, but only courtesy of the fact that Rahu and Ketu are like Saturn, Mars, respectively. Therefore, they're at home in Aquarius, Aries, respectively. Mm-hmm. And just for listeners, just to clarify one point there you made about uh, Swamsa, basically, that's the divisional charts. So in astrology, obviously, we look at signs and we divide them down into further divisions and we come up with other charts. So you can have, obviously, Rahu K2 perhaps strongly placed in the main Rashi or the natal chart, but it tells a very different story on other levels or in different areas of a person's life. Would, would that be a good synopsis? Yes, exactly. So uh, for anyone who's familiar with the divisional charts, you know, they're not real, you know, charts of planets in the sky. They instantly become um, symbolic charts where you could have, you know, sun and and Mercury uh, on opposite sides of a divisional chart, where clearly that can never happen in the birth chart. Uh, So, yes, uh, they they do, uh, they can and do move around uh, in in the signs, of course. I wanted to come back to one thing because you're asking me about Rahu Ketu in the current uh, scheme of things. Uh, Rahu is currently in Ardra, which is a nakshatra in in the middle of uh, Gemini, which runs from 640 to um, 20 degrees of Gemini. So Ardra is, is uh, you know, uh, its symbol is, is tears. And uh, um, uh, planets in Ardra will sometimes provoke sadness, sorrow, despair, misery, etc. Rahu currently in its own nakshatra, you know, uh, from a transiting point of view, uh, has been in Ardra for a while, and it will be there for a while yet, although really only about another uh, another couple of months, I guess. I haven't really. A couple of months, at it. yeah. It's yeah. 21st of May. Uh, it leaves Ardra. It moves into Mrikashiras. 
Good, thank you. Uh, so it's it's uh, working because it's at nine degrees and change, and it, it will leave when it gets to 640. You know, in its ret permanently retrogressive movement. So Rahu will be there until then. You know, I guess on a mundane level, you might look forward and say, well, that could be maybe a breaking point around then when Rahu leaves Ardra uh, and no longer acts with such great power. You know, Rahu and Keto are associated with poisons and their antidotes. And if, if ever there was a, a potent symbol for bacteria and viruses and indeed epidemics and pandemics, uh, Rahu and Ketu are, are quite suitable for that. Indeed, Ketu is in its own nakshatra mula as well too. So currently, both, um, both the nodes are operating with a significant degree of power yeah, in these months uh, that we're currently living through and seeing the consequences, of course, in, uh, throughout the world. Absolutely. And it's, it's quite extreme at the moment. And I should mention as well that K2 will be in Mula until September. But as you say, and I thought I thought that as well, as soon as Rahu moves into Mikrashiras, that it would at least ease that up, that anxiety that's been fueled at the moment with Rahu in Gemini. It seems to be an overdrive um, with yeah, you know, well, news media and pumping it out, you know. Well, it is real. And of course, you know, the, the media uh, are responsible in the sense that they're reporting it and because it must be reported you can't lie about something like this uh and uh, it's it's normal that, that people will um you know overreact um, it's certainly a time when we we've all got to be prudent but not necessarily to panic exactly yeah well said so um thank you alan that's been a really uh, insightful and illuminating conversation about what is essentially a shadow or shadows um, I just have a few questions to wrap up, perhaps maybe just to give uh, sure. listeners a bit of a background, uh, where you're coming from, who you are, what you do. Um, yeah. But first, I'd just like to ask you, uh, in terms of your work in astrology, in Vedic astrology specifically, I know you, that you work a lot with, with uh, Western astrologers in conferences and so on, but w what do you envision for the future of Jyotish Vedic astrology? Well, you know, I think it's still in its period of ascendancy. I mean, you know, the, the entire yoga movement, you know, the Hatha yoga movement has educated people to, you know, quite a degree, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Vedas and the philosophy uh, associated with that, including, you know, Ayurveda and, and notions that are, you know, common to us of Dharma and Karma, etc. So th there's that general drift. And also, you know, more and more people are becoming aware of alternative astrologies. Aside from, you know, Western astrology, there's the Hellenistic movement and uh, whole sign uh, horoscopes. And Jyotish, you know, is similar in that regard, except for the use of sidereal versus tropical. And people are learning uh, about Jyotish more and more through Facebook groups and you know the conversion of, um, of of some Western astrologers to the science, which is you know what attracted me was uh, its complexity. Uh, you know the dashas, the bhuktis, the major and minor planetary periods, uh, the divisional charts. I mean it's fascinating if you sort of have a mathematical frame of mind. I get sucked in and never get out. Yeah, you seem to work a lot with um, statistical analysis, and I'm wondering as well, in what role does technology play for you in astrology? I imagine a lot because you, you do work with a lot of charts and, and, and you bring out a lot of data. Well, you know, 
Um, I'm, I'm inclined just to be a number cruncher, I guess, just out of curiosity without really knowing where it will lead. And I'm always interested in doing that. Uh, my teacher sort of, uh, I won't say frowns upon it, but looks looks at statistics and in, in, in astrology with a bit of a, a jaundiced eye. Uh, but I do it nonetheless. But God knows I appreciate uh Computers, because in the old days, when I first began, I mean, I had to calculate everything by hand, quite literally. And, you know, you couldn't afford to be curious about much because it would entail, you know, at least a half an hour to do a detailed, you know, natal chart. Whereas nowadays, as you know, with, you know, uh, five seconds of typing data into a computer, you can have the natal chart, um, which, you know, Western astrologers say, yeah, sure, that's great. But for Vedic astrologers, it's so huge because to calculate dashas and bhuktis and all the divisional charts would quite literally probably take a whole day if I had to do it by hand. So this is huge and it, it allows us to explore, you know, follow our curiosity where, wherever it goes and look at any chart like almost instantly in a great deal of detail. I mean, not all of us know what to make of all that detail, you can certainly get lost in minutia. That's a, that's a great danger. And I see this happening all the time in internet, uh, uh, Facebook uh, astrology groups, especially with respect to Jyotish and the abundance of, you know, information, which can certainly, you know, confuse you quite readily. But if you know what to look for and how to assess it, it's a boon, no doubt. Computerization is fantastic. I don't think it's ever going to get to the point where uh, computers are going to make, you know, value-added judgments about a chart and say whether this person will be famous or a millionaire or stuff like that. I still think that personal judgment is a huge factor in chart interpretation. And let's face it, this is as much an art as it is a science. And intuition plays a huge role in all this as well, too. Intuition based upon experience. Right. This is the combination. Yeah. Great. So um, a few last questions, Alan, just to get to know a little bit more about you. Um, what would you uh, do if you were not an astrologer? <laughs> I'd go back to doing what I used to do, which was, you know, basically a, a writer. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm attracted to challenges of one kind or another. You know, there's a writer I admire very much. His name is um, Cormac McCarthy. He's the author of this uh, book, uh, No Country for Old Men, that was right. uh, later made into a, into a movie. And he says something to the effect like, I'm not interested in writing short stories. I only write novels. Anything that doesn't, you know, take years off your life and, and nearly drive you to suicide hardly seems worth doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, and I've, I've written lots of novels and many of them have not seen the light of day uh, for one reason or another. But, you know, uh, trying to tackle astrology, you know, in, in depth and, and to be to to try to achieve everything that we th think astrology is capable of. Is, is a monumental task for humans. I mean, to read a chart correctly and know what profession that person will follow or when and where they will meet their spouse and on and on and on with such details, I mean, that we hear of uh, from, you know, fabled astrologers. Uh, for humans to do this, it's a gargantuan task. And we, we sometimes kid ourselves that we can be David in face of such a Goliath and succeed. 
But, you know, we try in a way, I guess we're ever hopeful and and I am in that respect as well, too. Yeah, we keep we keep trying. Yeah. Great. So um, another question. Um, how were you introduced to astrology and was it love at first sight? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. I was browsing in a bookstore one day and I, I don't want to date myself, but I will. Mm-hmm. This was like mid 70s. And I was browsing in this bookstore and I don't know if I bumped the the bookshelf or what happened or was it simply fate. A book fell off the shelf, literally, and I caught it before it hit the floor. And it was this book, yeah, uh, an inexpensive paperback uh, called um, A Time for Astrology by Jess Stern. I I bought it that day because it was seemed like such an omen. It was only three bucks. Well, back in that era, right? But it had everything inside its two covers, including an ephemeris and all the cookbook principles to say what it meant to have Mars and Aries and Mars in the ninth house and so on and so forth that allowed, you know, me to read uh, first, calculate my chart, um, you know, that evening and then to begin reading about it, you know, uh, that same night. And I was so um, well, I was I was 24 at the time. And a bit uncertain, as many a person in their 20s is, about, like, what's my life all about? And what am I going to do for a living? And, you know, what's my my true calling? And and after I had my chart assembled and starting to read about it, I kept reading over and over again that, you know, you had the makings of, you know, literary skills and could be a writer and, and that sort of thing. And this was music to my ears because I was then at that point just struggling with short stories and sort of dreaming about writing novels. Well, this was an affirmation, the like of which I had never heard from any other source, that simply emboldened me to say, ha, here, look, this this says, astrology says, I'm going to be a writer. And so I, I began to practice what it had intimated right then and there. But not only that, the icing on the cake as well was, it. Uh, my chart also said many things about about the capacity for astrology as well, too, and indeed for music as well. So look, get it all in perspective. I, I, I've gone on to be, for the most part, a writer throughout my life, both you know, uh, in, in corporate work and in, in uh, creative work and success you know, to some degree in terms of publishing and all the rest of that. But parallel to all this, throughout this entire era, I have been as much an astrologer studying, practicing, uh, seeing clients as I have been a writer. So that's really been a twofold path for me. The music, not so much, but as I sit here at my desk and I glance over at my, you know, five guitars, uh, I'm always, I'm still in love with music and I, I, I play actually more now than I used to back in, in that era, in my 30, uh, 30s and 40s, etc. Uh, but it's as a passionate, you know, amateur rather than a professional. I do consider myself a professional writer and astrologer. Um, and that book kind of nudged me in that direction in terms of a powerful affirmation that just set my set my path. Reading that was like winning the trifecta. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's it's so great as well to have like that kind of um, backup as an astrologer to be a writer also because. It seems that as an astrologer, you have to be so many other things anyway. You know, you have to be a, a social commentator, a, you know, this, that and the other to be able to write anything. But of course, then you have to write about it oftentimes. So uh, and that's why I think it comes across really clearly in your books. Um, 
which yeah which i've really enjoyed can you tell us actually about your books um on vedic astrology in particular uh the first one i wrote was uh um part of Vartna yoga which which i had uh, written the rudiments of it for a thesis for aqua the american college of vedic astrology like well over a decade ago my god it's almost uh, almost two decades ago i guess that i wrote that thesis uh, and somebody said at the time, "Wow, well, you know, this is uh, 10,000 words. I only had only been required to write, uh, maybe it was a 10,000 word thesis was required. I ended up writing a 30,000 word thesis. Well, because I love to write and it was easy. I got carried away, right? Uh, I do get carried away <laughs> between writing and astrology. Anyway, but I let it sit. You know, somebody said this would make a good book. And I thought, yeah, well, yeah, who would read it though? <laughs> but anyway, years went by and, and, and my my teacher, who is Hart Defoe, uh, you know, for whom I have great gratitude, I I credit my good fortune to have crossed his path and become aware of him, and and then I I thank him like almost every day, uh, you know, in my heart for you know having allowed me into his courses and to have enjoyed a continued association with him today that you know enlightens me and enlivens my work, but I also have the great good fortune to meet his guru as well here in uh, in Toronto and at a certain point he got on my case and he started saying you should write you should write Jyotish books stop writing novels you know that's fun for you maybe I said it's not fun it's hard work and he said well whatever <laughs> but you know you should write books on Jyotish and I thought back to this thesis that I'd written on Parivartana Yoga and I said you know what I'll do it even though I don't think the audience for it is much I will do it for myself. I'll do it for Mantraji just to make him happy that I've written a book on Jyotish. And so that was my first book. And But along the way, I've been writing articles for my website, uh, navamsha.com. And I realized, my gosh, I'd, I'd accumulated so many articles. I, I had a book-length um, you know, tome available. So I, I packaged uh, all the articles I had available at that point into a book, uh, which I called Stellar Astrology Volume 1. And I continued to write articles, and after you know a couple more years, I had another uh, you know 30 articles that I packaged to do volume two. And as we speak, I'm just in the process of packaging yet another big bundle of articles into a volume three. So, um, Party Vardhana Yoga is is probably the book that you know I was most proud of up until the time that I wrote Kala Sarpa um, two years ago which was, you know, much more of a, a labor because it was more starting from ground zero. I didn't have a thesis to sort of, you know, spiral out of. I <clears throat> started at zero. And of course, there's nothing written uh, in Shastra. So I had so little to work with. I had uh, notes from a, a, a couple of weekend seminars from Hart Defoe on the subject of Kalasarpa. And that, that formed the 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 bare skeleton of uh, material and then i just you know gathered charts and i read everything i could about anything that anybody else had ever written about kalasarpa which is a very scant and i just continued to develop and develop and develop and uh, eventually and, and you know I, I was as surprised as anybody that i was able to turn this into you know a, a book not only just a book but a fairly substantial one in terms of case histories uh, that uh, I enjoyed uh, researching and writing about. So 
it's it's been a labor of love and uh, uh, difficult but rewarding. And uh, I guess I I hope to look back on my life ultimately <laughs> and say the same things: uh, difficult but rewarding. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do commend you on your work. I mean, I've read all of your books, the astrology books at any rate. Um, uh, and I look forward to the next one. So you have part three coming out soon, you said. Yes, uh, volume three of uh, Stellar Astrology, another uh, collection of essays. Yeah. Great, great. So can you uh, thank you so much, um, Alan, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're so welcome. Um, can you tell uh, people who are listening how to get in touch with you, where you're at online? Um, you mentioned there your website, navamshid.com. Yeah, if people know how to spell that. Of course, the way it's pronounced, Navamsha, sounds like an S-H in there. But most people familiar with Vedic astrology might know that it, that it is, <clears throat> can be spelled N-A-V-A-M-S-A. So Navamsa, if I were to say it more cleanly, Navamsa.com is my website where, you know, my my background and uh, services and fees, etc. are all there, plus dozens and dozens of articles and links to uh, <clears throat> Amazon and elsewhere where all of my books, uh, both my astrology books and uh, and novels are available. One thing that I'm proud of and, and, and continue to uh be comforted by, even though people don't read anymore. Uh, I have this series, which I call the New Age Noir series, which which I wrote as a kind of a homage to my own teacher without naming him. You know, sitting in Jyotish class, you know, one day many years ago, I, I thought to myself, what if Hart Defoe was, you know, a, uh, a private detective who happened to know Jyotish and Hasta, you know, palmistry, Ayurveda, <clears throat> Nimitta, omens, uh, numerology, uh, Vastu, you know, the, the Indian equivalent of feng shui. Uh, what if he got involved in, you know, um, uh, trying to solve mysteries? And I, I ran away with that idea, and I, I wrote my first book on that sort of uh, story, you know, that theme and storyline uh, called Scorpio Rising. And then I, I wrote two more books using the same uh, character, you know, a sort of a guru-like character, human, but with with clay feet, as we say, um, um, who who was a practicing Jyotishi uh, who got involved in, in uh, uh, murder investigations. So the other two books are uh, Felonious Monk and uh, Soma County. So that's a series, a, a trilogy. Uh, which people can buy singly or or as a as a set a trilogy set, which I've I've been gratified to hear many people you know write and say you know this this is all very um, both entertaining excellent mysteries and uh, very revelatory in terms of uh, the life of a of a Jyotishi and what he brings to bear in an analysis and by virtue of uh, um, you know, involving his guru as well too, Mantraji, which is Hart Defoe's guru. He appears in this uh, as well too, not by name, but as you know, that sort of shadowy guru who guides his his acolytes' activities. I had great, great fun uh, writing these novels, uh, and people have been asking me, "Will you write more?" But uh, I think not. I've moved on to uh, the nonfiction uh, realm now, and I find that uh, you know ultimately more gratifying because. As I write these books, I learn as well, too, all over again. And uh, and that's what keeps me going. So there'll be more from me in that vein um, in terms of nonfiction. 
Great. And I'm just curious as to why you named the book Scorpio Rising, being Scorpio Rising here myself. <laughs> Scorpio Moon myself. And, uh, well, you know, I simply thought, well, it's it's enough just to, pr to provoke interest among one twelfth of humanity. And Scorpio is associated with mysteries and all the rest of that. And, uh, uh, you know, be that as it may, I just thought it was a convenient way to, to get started. And, and away we went. Uh, for those people, who, you know, who don't look up Navamsha.com, but me, uh, be uh, frequenters of Facebook. Uh, you can find me as a uh, active force on Facebook. Uh, you know, in dozens of uh, online um, astrology groups, uh, particular Vedic astrology. Perfect. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll mention um, all those contact details again after we finish up here. Also, um, but your website again is Navamsa and N A V M A S A dot com. Um, thanks. Alan, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and you've enlightened us and give, given us a lot to think about also in terms of these nodes and uh, the controversy surrounding them. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. Indeed, Gary, and thank you again for inviting me to appear here. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Timeline Astrology Podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with Alan, his website is navamsa.com. That's N-A-V-A-M-S-A, navamsa.com. And you can find him on Facebook also, Alan Anand, A-N-N-A-N-D. So my own website here is timelineastrology.com. If you have any questions, you can email me at info at timelineastrology.com. Another option for those who'd like to go a bit deeper with astrology and what I have to offer is Patreon. Um, Patreon is a great way of just supporting my work but also getting a lot more out of it. So I write daily in-depth reports on the current astrological climate and I also write more lengthy articles which you can get your hands on at patreon.com forward slash timeline astrology as well as lengthy monthly reports. So I offer um, this for patrons only. I write a monthly report on the transits for the upcoming month, as well as a video presentation, a day-by-day -day look at the upcoming month, which patrons can access online. So have a look at patreon.com forward slash timeline astrology. Again, thank you for taking the time to listen and until next time. <music>